This season of Desert Island Dishes is sponsored by Cook's Matches. Cook's Matches have been the mainstay of British kitchens for over 40 years and remain the match for both cooks and chefs to use in the kitchen. I just find there to be something so wonderfully comforting about those iconic yellow boxes. Perhaps it's because I grew up with them always being in my parents' kitchen, or perhaps it's because they were always there in the background of every birthday cake being lit. <laughs> no kitchen should be complete without a trusty box of these matches. They are just the easiest and most eco-friendly way to light everything from stoves and barbecues to candles. You may think that all matches are created equal, but surely we've all gone through a box of matches where they all break before you can even get one to strike. And that simply doesn't happen with Cook's Matches. And that's why they've been the go-to kitchen match for so long. As an added bonus, each box now features a recipe from the one and only Tom Kerridge. To find out more, head to the website www.cooksmatches.co.uk and you can find them on social media with the handle at Cooks Matches. Thank you very much to Cooks Matches. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island Dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Hi, how are you all? Hope you're all having a lovely week. What have you all been up to? We had my daughter's christening at the weekend and I made a cake for the first time in forever. A distinctly wedding cake-ish, naked layer cake. Um, but I forgot how much I love making cakes, but I suppose it always is more fun when it's for someone that you love, isn't it? And I did slightly lose my nerve and put probably an unnecessary amount of dowling rods in it. So by the end, I think it was probably 50% dowling rods. <laughs> but luckily I was the one to cut it. So I'm not sure any of our guests knew about that. So I think I got away with it. Today's episode of Desert Island Dishes is with Jo Malone, an entrepreneur that I admire greatly. She's done the near impossible and built two global businesses. Most people dream of that kind of success once in a lifetime, and she's done it twice. So it was a real pleasure to sit down with her in her beautiful shop and hear all about how she got to where she is today with some delicious dishes intertwined. So wherever you are and whatever you're doing, enjoy today's episode. My guest today is Jo Malone, CBE. I'm sure most of you listening will be familiar with her name. Your mind is probably instantly transported to a world of delicious scents and candles, two things synonymous with Jo. Jo is responsible for creating some of the world's most loved fragrances ever since she launched her cult namesake brand in 1994. After leaving Jo Malone in 2006, Jo launched Jo Loves, which is all about the things that make her heart beat. But what you might not know is the incredible story of how she got to where she is today, a story which involves a magician, a famous countess, and her incredible sense of smell that took her from life on a council estate, leaving school with no qualifications to becoming one of the biggest success stories of recent times by creating two global brands. Her story really shows the resilience of a person who was told by teachers she would never get anywhere in life. 
Jo believes that her story proves that no matter what life throws at you, if you continue to get back up again, you can succeed. She has said that she wants people to hear her story and to think, if she can do it, I can definitely do it. Welcome, Jo. Oh, what an amazing introduction. (laughs) Well, it's such a pleasure to have you on Desert Island Dishes. And I wanted to start by saying that I always think when people say, if I can do it, anyone can do it. It's a very modest thing to say, which I think says a lot about you in the first place. But do you really think that's true, that anyone can do it? I I absolutely believe that. And I mean, my goodness, we can see it right the way across the world, right at this very moment in time. And I think, you know, dreams belong to nobody. Your dreams belong to nobody but yourself. And it's up to you. Do you want to make them happen? So the answer to that is five star. Yes, it is the truth. And so much of your story centers around this incredible gift that you have, this superhuman sense of smell. But before we get into the real nitty gritty of that, I just wanted to quickly ask you about something that I read, that your sense of smell is so acute that you've actually had it tested at a facility where they train dogs to sniff out illnesses in people. Joe, that's amazing. (laughs) So you read all about these medical detection dogs that have been able to sniff everything from diabetes, epilepsy, pseudonymous bacteria to COVID. And I went down to this facility in Milton Keynes and actually sat with the whole team and saw the dogs at work. And they said to me, because I'd previously from that, I had detected an illness in my husband way before any doctor, any blood test. That's how it all started. And I could smell this very strange, like dirty moss smell down his neck and it was at this one point on his neck and he was getting sicker and sicker and in fact he was going into what's called adrenal failure and what I was smelling was his adrenals giving off this chemical and we actually managed to I mean the doctors at at, uh, the hospital everyone we saved his life but his life would not have been saved I believe if we hadn't I've actually stepped in and just said something is really, really wrong here. So, yes, I got in the pen with the dogs. There's photographic evidence of me being sniffed all over by (laughs) Labradors and Spaniels. And I got in and I did the test with the dogs. So what did you have to Um, do? I had to smell what they smell. And I. so I think the dogs can smell, they're trained to smell and detect that chemical, whatever it is. So whether it's it's a chemical imbalance in your body or it's a pseudonymous bacteria sitting on a hospital bed, They are trained to smell that. The difference with me is I'm not trained. I mean, I would love to train like a dog. (laughs) And no, because I think then I can, because dogs can't speak. And then we could communicate and I could say, what I'm smelling is X. That could be your next business venture. No, I'm not doing another (laughs) business. But um, but anyway, the long and short of it was, yes, I did did the test with the dogs. And yes, I came out and I could smell what they smelled. And were you the only human that they've Mm -hmm. tested? I hopefully by now know, but at that moment in time, yes. But if ever you want to come down and visit and uh, people want to go on the website and see the incredible work that Dr. Claire Guest does with her team, it is mind-blowing. And I tell you something, I would trust a dog any day of the week to um, diagnose me. So I know in many ways your childhood wasn't necessarily the easiest or perhaps most conventional, but from listening to you talk about your childhood, it is evident that those early moments with your parents really did help to shape the person that you are today. So let's pause there and talk about the first Desert Island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. So I think the dish that probably most reminds me about my childhood is Chinese food. 
not because my parents came from China or anything like that, but I used to do all the markets with my father, learning learning how to sell his beautiful water and oil colored paintings. And we would do Crayford, Blackheath, all Tunbridge Wells, all the markets. And if we had a good day, we would get Chinese food on the way home. And I remember sitting in the, if I close my eyes, I'm right back there. My father was this very good looking six foot two kind of guy and very, very quiet and gentle, but very, very sort of creative. And he'd look it in his pocket and he'd go, okay, we can go and get Chinese. And we always ordered the same thing. He would have a beer, I would have a pineapple juice, and we'd order our Chinese food. So Chinese food meant good news in our house. Oh, that's so nice. And what, what was it that you'd always order? We'd order spring rolls, special fried rice, sweet and sour pork, crispy prawn toast, and prawn crackers. And when you have it now, are you sort of, you're still transported back to those happy times? So Chinese food for us still to this day as our family is a sign of celebration and it's a sign of good news. And when Gary and I were first starting and we had no money, at the end of the month, if we had a little bit of money, we would get takeaway Chinese. So Chinese food for us is, is, and actually, you know, something we should, we should look at life and think, it doesn't matter where you go, how much money is in your pocket and whatever. Remember the things that made you who you are. And uh, yeah, and to this day, I love, if I have a terrible hangover, <laughs> Chinese noodles really are the, the, the cure for it. Yeah. <laughs> They're cure-all. <laughs> so you grew up on a council estate and, and money was often tight from everything I've read. In part, that was due to your father's gambling habit, I believe. But you, as a result, were the family's provider by the age of 11. You had to grow up really fast and... I was reading your book and there's a really beautiful scene where you describe a little girl standing at a frosty window Mm -hmm. and you say at that moment you made a decision that life was going to change. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I can remember. So our bedroom, we had, we were, we lived in a little two up, two down. Uh, My sister and I used to fight terribly. So my, my father put a petition through the bedroom. So we had one window each. So we had this, and I know this sounds really, really weird, but I, didn't have a bed. I had a sofa and that's what I slept on. And I and it was yellow leather. I used to hate it because I used to slip off in the, in the summer and stick to it in the winter. But that was my bed for a long time. And I remember that little girl I can remember my bedroom. Like it was no tomorrow. There was an old record player in the corner. And I remember and we had no central heating. Nobody had central heating. Actually, then you had coal fires or log fires. And that was how you heated your home. But I can remember it was a wintry day and the, it was so cold. It had, iced up on the front of the window and on the inside. And I remember standing there and I got my finger and I scratched the surface of the window and I noticed the ice start to melt on the inside and the outside. And I remember thinking, I don't want to let, I could hear my mum and dad fighting downstairs. And it was, it was a happy childhood, but it was a very unhappy childhood as well, if you know what I mean. There were, there were lots of responsibilities that were on my shoulders far too, you know, I was, I was 11 years old when it was up to me to put food on the table. And I remember thinking, I don't want to live like this. And no matter what I have to do, I'll work as hard as I can, but I'm not going to have my children live like I do. And such a strong motivation. But at that moment, did you have any idea what it might be? Like, how are you going to change your life? No, because I was struggling at school because of dyslexia, which hadn't been diagnosed until I was 16. And everyone kept saying to me, you're lazy and stupid. And I knew I was neither one of those. I knew that I wasn't frightened of hard work and I could work things out, but not in the same way that other people did. So, no, but I think 
you know, when, when you look at children, I mean, children have so much more than they think they have, and they have so much more than we realize. And that capacity to problem solve very quickly in a very innocent way is very natural to them. So, you know, there was lots of problem solving that I had to think through. And I suppose that's where my dyslexia really came in. And have you ever seen that movie, The Queen's Gambit, when she's playing chess and she looks on the ceiling? Yeah. I will often look up when I'm thinking. And it's almost as, as though I see the problem ahead of me and I'm working out what are the steps. And I learned that as a young child, how to go into your imagination, how to think about what are the three steps that you need to do first in order to get there? Don't worry about that bit. Worry about those first three steps. And I suppose my education must have been one of those. And I failed and failed and failed in education. I've got no qualifications. I never went to university. I never went to college. I've got not a piece of paper to my name. But I built two global brands and was recognized by the Queen. So Anyone listening to this, that someone tells you you're not good enough, it's not true. Yeah. yeah, it just shows all of those things. They're just, they're not a good measure of intelligence or, you know, a measure of a person, are they? That's like the big failing of our education system is it's so one way. Well, it is important for those that can do it. You know, I'm not taking away from those that, that do go to uni. I mean, my son's just gone off to uni and I'm not taking away. But if you're not one of those people... You're not second class and you're not thrown on the scrap heap. You just have to do it differently. That's all. So your mother was in the beauty industry and your father was an artist and a magician. So you've said that creativity was all around you and obviously had a really big influence on you. Your father was an artist and a magician and you worked selling his paintings at the market, but you also worked as his assistant. And he was a member of the Magic Circle. So does that mean that you know all of the magic secrets? I know some. And I am Debbie, Debbie McGee. Yes. I'm so <laughs> envious. But so, my whole life wanting to know um, the answers. Yeah, no, I do know some of them. I never, never learned how you saw someone in half. I used to help him make the magic tricks, which often went horribly wrong. And it was a bit like, um, you know, Harry Potter versus Charlie and the Chocolate Factory sort of. And when I would walk in the door from school, I would sometimes smell like sulfur. And I knew that he was in the shed working out some bang from a box or something that he was trying to, trying to figure out. But yeah, I was often there and I would look after. So I had a pet dove called Suki. And she had her wings clipped. So, but, but she, she sat on my shoulder and she loved me and I loved her. And then we had white rabbits. So we had 12 white rabbits that would appear from hats. So I would often, I was the assistant. I would help him set up. And he, he, my father was the showman. I mean, he really was. And I, for all his failings, oh my goodness, he was this big, wonderful, gregarious, entertaining wonderful character that I learned a lot from in life but I would be there yeah so I would uh, you know like Suki used to appear from a pan of fire and then she I mean she do have, she knew exactly how to perform and what to do <laughs> and then she would come find me straight away because if their wings are clipped they can only sw uh, fly down not up okay so she would find my shoulder straight away and sit there and chat to me with her head kind of rubbing on my on my I loved her <laughs> and then we had um <laughs> we had a pet rabbit called Spanky. I won't go into that. I have no idea why I called it Spanky, but I did. And um, we had 12s and they would appear from hats and run all over. And, and then, the, you know, all the kids at the, at the birthday parties would love to straight oh. them. But yes, I was yeah. the magician's yeah. that assistant. Really, that sounds magical. Let's pause there and talk about the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. 
So at the age of 16, I moved to London and I stayed with the most incredible family called the Souls. And Vivian and Richard were the mum and dad. I had my first job, but I'd come from... Suddenly I went to, to live with this incredible family and she was the most amazing cook. And they just, they just pulled me into their family and suddenly... There with the mum and dad, she would cook dinner in the evening and it was a completely change for me. Anyway, I would stand in the kitchen and uh, she taught me to make lasagna. And she was an amazing cook. She she would cook for like 20 people with no problem at all. And she taught me how to, yeah, cook the mince so I could, she said, you can make shepherd's pie, you can do bolognese, you can do chilli, but a lasagna. And they owned a beautiful boat, sailboat called Thalassa. And so we would often have to prepare the food for the weekend if we were all going down. And lasagna was always everyone's favourite. So lasagna was the first thing I learned to cook. And do you still cook it the same way? Uh, yes, yeah. absolutely. She, I don't use as much cheese and butter. Okay. <laughs> Joe, uh, that's very disappointing to but, hear. But, <laughs> uh, no, because my, my husband's an, um, anti-dairy, so oh, okay. he that's can't eat it. So we have to sort of <laughs> adapt. But I do like a good old cheesy like crisp you know like when it's all crispy on the top i like all the bits around the side so you can't rush a lasagna you've got to give it the time it deserves so i think a big turning point in your life seems to be when you went to join your mum at her work and you met madame labati she sounds like the most incredible woman can you tell us a bit about her oh she was she do you know do you know what every time i look at helen mirren it's Madame Labasi. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, it's super glamorous. It's so super, super. So she was like six foot two. When I first met her, she was nearing her 80s. So she was, but she was always in fishnet tights, high heels, long white lab coat, white blonde hair, blood red lips, long. And she, we would often walk in and she'd be standing on, she loved yoga. She was standing on her head oh, <laughs> and she'd go, Five more minutes, Joe, and I'll be with you. I'm just letting the blood get to the brain. And she was just, she was captivating, absolutely. And she had a smell about her. It was sandalwood and rose oil to, uh, mixed together. And she had a little laboratory. And my mum would go off and do look after patients. And I would sit with Madam. So she was my best friend. I was seven, five, six, seven. And I only had one smart skirt so I would always have my little kilt, my my John Lewis kilt on. Uh, and I can remember it. And I'd sit on the step by the side of the white laboratory. It looks very similar to this. Big glass, like sweetie jars full of herbs and oils and a pestle and mortar. And I would watch her. And I made my first face mask, which I could do for you like that in a second sitting here. And I made my first mask at the age of, uh, I think I was seven years old. Wow. And did she ever get to see what you became? Because no. I imagine she'd be so proud. So the sad thing was she developed uh, Alzheimer's and I was there. We, I used to, we used to go off together and the apartment was in Montague Mansions just off of Baker Street. So we would often go down to a little Viennese tea shop called Sons, which eventually went to be Valerie Patisserie, I think. And we would go down and she would buy me a little chocolate uh, marzipan seal and she would have a chicken volavon and we would sit there and have tea. And it was just magical. It was truly magical. And one day as we walked down, she looked at me and she said, I can't remember where I am. And I said, it's okay, madam, I, do, I know where we are. She said, Joe, I know who you are, but I don't know how to get home. And I took her hand, I said, I, I know. And she deteriorated really quickly, really quickly from there. But the memories I have of her are so vivid. And so um, I remember her once <laughs> cooking a roast chicken with rosemary and lavender body oil oh. and, <laughs> and nearly poisoning it. Oh. 
There's a quote that I read that you told of your time with her where she said, Joe, if you're going to do anything in life, do it with utter perfection or there's no point at all. Do you think perfectionism is something that you've mm. taken with you throughout uh, your career? It's a very poignant question for me at this moment in time. And yes, is the answer to that. I do, I've lived my life trying to give my very best to everything I do. And it's so funny, just recently, I found it being has been a tremendous asset all the way through my life. You know, always reach higher, never settle for second best. And actually over the last sort of six months, I found coming out of lockdown really difficult. And that perfection has been the thing that's pulled me down because I can't, I can't be anything else. You know, I can't, and I sit there and I'll look at something, whether it's a candle or fragrance, a bowl of pasta, a bed that's been made. And it's like, no, do it again do it properly. Let's, you know, if that's all we have left, our very best, that's where we have to settle. So I still believe it wholeheartedly. And I've actually, I've had the, the sweet and bitter experience of perfection. And, you know, perfection, if you allow it to run your life in everything, because not everything is perfect, let's yeah. be honest, you know, things happen. Yeah. So I've seen, I've seen both sides of the coin, but ultimately, I still believe that if you don't bring your best to everything that you do, or even try to do it, that you miss out on something, that you miss out on great adventures in life. So let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. Oh, I struggled with this one because I've been lucky. I have, I've had the best beans on toast and I've had the best Chinese and I've had, I really love food. I love the way it looks. I love the way it tastes. I love sitting around a big table. So I think for me, the best food I've ever had is probably in the Amanpuri in Thailand. Ooh. And we went for my best friend's wedding. And um, he was marrying this, uh, this amazing woman called uh, Divya Lavanye, who loves food, is amazing. She created Zuma. Oh, wow. And uh, she's part of the townhouse that's just about to open. And she's an incredibly talented woman. Anyway, lots of our friends. And we stayed there for a month. I don't know why we did. The wedding was like a week, like with um, all these. And it was just incredible. But it changed the way we ate as a family. This is many years ago. So everything that was prepared was either with fresh. And it was the first time I tasted pomelo. So this was way before I created Pomelo and I tasted this fruit and I couldn't, I couldn't believe it was with um, shredded chili chicken. It was with all these amazing spices and they just, they, they treat food as though it's a beautiful opera and a piece of music. They're the notes that go in. So I think the best one is we had a party and we had everyone in this beautiful little pagoda with this beautiful round table. I think it was like 15 of us. And uh, there was the banter in the chat because I think the best food is often with the greatest company. So it would be the Amanpuri in Thailand, Oi and King were the, the two amazing chefs that cooked it. And it was totally and unbelievably. And at the end of dinner, they served these platters of, sh of mango with lime and the mango tasted like it had just dropped from heaven. It was so delicious. And hence why we do mango and Thai lime as well. Uh, oh, that's amazing. Can we talk for a moment about your amazing sense of smell? You say that smell for you is the key to unlocking memories. And, and that is largely because of your dyslexia. 
But the reason that your sense of smell is different from most people's is I think you have something called synesthesia. Is that am I pronouncing? Yeah, my brain is, is apparently it has been. Um, so during my time of um, being very sick with cancer, I had to be scanned and scanned and scanned. And my head, I, I, for some reason, my, um, I have a slight problem with vertigo after chemo, but it's, you know, livable. But obviously they thought it had, the cancer had traveled to my brain. So I had my brain scanned so many times. And one doctor one day said to me, it's very strange though, your primeval part of your brain is very large. <laughs> I was like, thank you very much. I had no <laughs> idea what that meant. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, it's very active. You're that primeval part, the, the hippocampus is very large in that and very active in that area. And I said, well, I'm dyslexic. And he said, your, your brain has probably compensated in some, in some way. They didn't really understand it. But he said, do you, when you smell, what do you, and I said, I see color. And he's, and so I said, my senses sometimes get really like when I hear a piece of music, it, it always travels back through the sense of smell though, always. That's the channel that it normally travels through and goes. And uh, he said to me, it, it's, I think you have this uh, synesthesia. And so that's where you're, so what life takes away with one hand, yeah. it will often give you back with another. You've just got to find what it is. Yeah. You have a super, um, a superpower. Well, it feels very natural to me. I mean, Honestly, you, you you know when when you um, when you touch a piece of chiffon, do you not smell something? Or when you when you eat a bowl of pasta, do you not hear music? And that's what it is. So it often takes you. But a lot of creative people find that you know this incredible um, sense that they have that's muddled is in fact their golden ticket to the adventures of life. I guess it yeah completely depends just how you look at something like glass half empty or half full, and. Yeah, this is most definitely a, genuinely a superpower. And I think if I could choose a superpower, that would be pretty high up <laughs> on my list. No, I'd, I'd choose something different. What would you choose? To be invisible. Yeah, that would, that would be a good one. <laughs> <laughs> so the story of how Jo Malone London came to be is a story that took place over many years. After your mother became ill, you took over her clientele. You became a facialist and started mixing bath oils at home. And like all overnight successes, there were many years of hard work that went on behind the scenes. I think you say it started with four plastic jugs, a saucepan and a whole heap of dreams. Can you tell us a little bit about that time? Still got those plastic jugs, Have still you? got that saucepan. And, and the dreams. Still got my dreams. <laughs> yep. No, again. Well, um, I started out by, by helping, you know, going in and working with my mom and then my mom got very sick. So I would then became the carer as well as the entrepreneur. You know, I, it's so funny when I look back at my life, things have often happened in threes and it, both in success. But, you know, like when once something hits you, it's normally followed by another two pretty heavy cannonballs coming in your direction. And I think that was definitely one of them. But again, sometimes in life when that happens, and you feel knocked to the ground, my advice is stay there for a bit. And trust me, I need to listen to my own advice. Just stay there. Just, uh, just stay there and gain your, gain your strength and, you know, get your breath back because it can't last forever. That, you know, that is a reality. And then when you're a bit stronger, then you, you kind of stand up. And I think that's what I did through my life. And I gathered myself and figured out where I was going. That first business, though, when I'd, um, I was just 22 years old, I think, just married, 21, 22, just married. And I started my first business and those plastic jugs you're talking about, that's where I rented a small apartment with no furniture. And I had these thoughts and dreams about, it goes all the way back to Madame Labati, probably my father, my mom, 
And um, I had these ideas of, I could smell fragrances in my head, but I didn't know how to interpret them. So I went to Paris. I sat with a perfumer and evaluator and this wonderful man called Derek. And that's where it started. And I started to, uh, you know, this, this innocent uh, English girl. And you can imagine the French thinking to themselves, yeah. <laughs> No training, yeah. English girl. This isn't going to no, work. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, but yeah, I pushed forward and I created um, some, my first collection of fragrances, which were just overnight success. And I know you say that you and Gary didn't set out to build a global brand, but when you opened your first shop, what was the plan or the dream? Because perhaps what happened was beyond even your wildest dreams. I think it was to survive. I, in all honesty, I think that first shop in Wharton Street was to survive, to, to survive, to pay the rent, to have a nice life, to do what we enjoyed. And within five years, we'd sold it to Lauder. And then within five years of that, we'd left. So, it, you know, that, that second shop that I, we knew it was a global brand by then. And actually, you can feel the momentum in businesses back, back then and also now. You can feel them picking up speed. And you have to make that decision is, you know, because... I think as an entrepreneur, you don't always set out to create global brands. You might if you're in tech or (laughs) music or film, I don't know, something like that. But certainly not when you're a small entrepreneurial business. You set out, you set your goals and your dreams and you head towards them. And then suddenly things start to change and you start to feel this speed gathering. And it's like, okay, we've got to learn to either run and sprint. Is this a marathon? Is this or do we just back off and just say, no, slow down, slow down? And uh, we sp- we sprinted with it. Uh, well, we sprinted actually with both of them. Yeah. And um, you know that that pace and that sprint has really served us well. Yeah. I, I guess you're right because I mean, obviously, you hope when someone starts something, it, it starts as a passion project. You know, you're doing something that you love, and so as you say, doing that and surviving is kind of a big enough plan. And then. Yeah, in your wildest dreams, something like what happened to you happened. <laughs> Let's pause there and talk about the fourth Desert Island dish, and that is your favourite sandwich. My favourite sandwich would be a cock monsieur <gasps> in Paris. So there's a little little shop that when I go and create fragrances, there's a little coffee shop. They do, oh my God, I mean, I love butter, and we never have it in our house. We only have olive oil or uh, non-dairy. And so when I go to Paris, it's like, yeah, croissant, butter. But there's a croque monsieur, which I just simply adore. I love grilled cheese as well, so I love grilled cheese sandwiches. And I love them when they're they're fried and in butter, I'm afraid, with cheese and bechamel sauce and ha, crispy ham. And a glass of wine is one of my favourite things in the whole world. Yeah. Never be afraid of butter. <laughs> but I try really, really hard. But I, I, honestly, in French cooking, but a croque monsieur really does need to be, to you know, you know, when you sear it. But I loved, I love grilled cheese. So I lived in New York for a year, and Sunday night supper was always these grilled cheese, like gooey, you know, that craft. <laughs> cheese new york yeah in a grilled cheese sandwich i don't think you want fancy cheese so yeah that would be my favorite sandwich in the world that is an excellent choice so not the um smoothest of segues going from talking about sandwiches (laughs) to um one of what must have been the most difficult times of your life you've already touched on the fact that you were very ill and you were going through chemotherapy. And I think I read that you lost during that period of time, you lost your sense of smell in a way, your superpower. 
and the only thing that you said you could taste was pineapple and the only thing that you could smell was metal. That must have been mm. incredibly frightening on top of everything else that was happening. Well, I was 38 years old when I was diagnosed with breast cancer and given nine months to live. So I had a little boy. I had a thriving business. And by that point, you know, we were well into the relationship with Estee Lauder and they, the Lauder family were amazing. I went to New York to live. I went to go and have this very pioneering chemotherapy, which was grueling. And I was so sick on it that I couldn't leave the city. Uh, I couldn't jump on a plane or do anything. So I had to stay. So we ran our business. But during, during the second part of the chemo, so I did the first course, I had to have surgery after surgery. I had a mastectomy. Then they found it in the other breast. So I had to have another mastectomy. You know, it was just, it was those three cannonballs I'm talking about. And what I told nobody at the time was I was losing my sense of smell. So, and everything, anything I did smell that I could smell made me so nauseous. Uh, and it's the only time in my life that I've not drunk wine oh, really? <laughs> either. I suddenly, suddenly, gorgeous William Yeowood sent me these beautiful wine goblets and all I ever drank out of it was fizzy water. Oh. <laughs> anyway, so it, I, yeah, I lost my sense of smell. So that when the treatment was over and I was given my, my life back, and I, you know, the, the plan was to go back in with Lauder. And I remember standing in the shop in Madison Avenue, we were opening, and I stood in the corner and I felt I was watching someone else's life. And of course that business had moved on. It had to, but I couldn't relate to it and I couldn't smell and I hadn't told anyone I couldn't smell. So I made the decision that night that I was going to leave Jomaline London and never, never return. And so I pushed the button, put the process in place and it was just it was just awful because I kept saying to myself you've made a mistake you've made a mistake deal was signed we all agreed on the on the day that I would leave I asked Leonard Lauder that I could be the last person in the shop in Sloan Street to put the bottles on the shelf and I did and I knew I'd made the biggest mistake of my life or so I thought that why had I done this and six weeks after leaving so I locked the Locked the key, put the keys through the letterbox, and that was the end of that chapter of my life. And I'd left the brand that I'd started. I walked home. I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And I had a five-year lockout. And in that five-year, rightly so, you, you paid a lot of money for a business. You can't just set up. But I had a five-year lockout. And I never thought I would ever use it. I never thought I'd you know, enter into that. It was just destroying to me because... I'm this creative being. I live for today. I live for this moment. I don't, and I live to create. That's what makes me the happiest. And I wasn't. So I had five years where I really lost, lost who I was. I lost myself. And then six weeks after leaving and, and turning that key, I woke up one morning and my sense of smell came back. And I think the story of how you came to create Pomelo, that was sort of quite a magical moment in, in terms of the smell returning. And I don't know, yeah. that kind of feels like it, it came full circle. It's, it? do, you, do you know what? This, this October, this September, September, October, it's 10 years since I created Pomelo. It's 10 years since Joe Loves was formed, so a decade ago. And Pomelo, so after that five years was up, I knew I was making a television show for the BBC at the time and I knew I just wanted, all I wanted to do was create fragrance, you know, all I wanted in the world. And I didn't want to create a global brand again. I didn't want to do, but I just wanted to create fragrance. I knew there was still something in me. So that evening in that garden, filling bottles of chili sauce, and I think that's probably what it was, is doing something that I used to do, fill bottles 
and I decided I'd start again. And so that's what we did around our kitchen table back looking, could we start a business? Was there, I had absolutely no idea what a mammoth battle it was going to be. <laughs> and I think if someone had sat me down with a cup of tea that day and said, this is what I wouldn't have done it. It has been so That's tough. So interesting. And so hard. The first three years were the hardest thing I have ever, ever. Talk about cannonballs. They yeah. came from every direction. <laughs> but you've already done it before. So it's that's so nothing, interesting, isn't it? nothing like the first time around. Time moves on. Yeah. I mean, look what's happened to this world in two, two years. Yeah. Time moves on. People change. So when I decided that, I, that we would create this new business, oh, my goodness, the names what do we call ourselves? Could I really do it again? There were so many questions. Josh, who was seven at the time, sat at the kitchen table and said, just call it Joe Loves, oh. mum, because <laughs> you love fragrance and fragrance loves you. Oh, Josh. If, if Josh is listening, I know you don't talk like that really, Josh. <laughs> um, and um, I started to create again, but it didn't come back naturally because I hadn't done it for five years. So I couldn't, the way I create fragrances, I see a note and I see all these holes, these spaces around it, like a piece of sculpture. And then my job is to find things to lock in and weave in and tell a story. So I'm always telling you a story through a fragrance. That's all. It's just a book for your nose. That's all it is. And uh, Pomelo was just this beautiful, very delicate note. I'd worked with this amazing perfumer called Christoph. And Christoph had created this inc these incredible accords, we call them. So one single note, and I fell in love with pomelo. And, of course, I remembered Oyen King and pomelo and chicken salad and pomelo, the smell of fresh pomelo juice. And I knew that that was my key back. But I could pomelo was so delicate, I couldn't get it to perform and stay. And, and so I, got it, I kept getting it so far, and then it would just fall. And then I get it so far. But we decided that we would launch with four fragrances. We launched with Orange Tool, Gardenia, Green Orange and Coriander, which is still with us today, and Pomelo. And we launched with four products and two candles. And uh, just before we were about to launch, I knew that Pomelo wasn't right. And so I pulled the launch <gasps> so, with all that, all that thousands stress. <laughs> my husband was nearly divorced me. Um, and I said, it's not right. We have to go back. And that's when I went to Parrot Key. And I sat with Pomelo and I hacked it out and I felt that fragrance spoke to me in a very powerful way and showed me that creative, I thought I'd lost the power to create and I realized that I'd never owned it in the first place. It was walking by the side of me and it was a stingray swimming by the side of me one morning up the beach that showed me that creativity is as near to me as that stingray and I looked up. And I, I was able to capture. And in fact, our 10th anniversary that we're, we're doing Happy Birthday Pomelo. And because she said to me, you have another chance. Never give up on your dreams. And this will, you will be bigger than you were ever, ever dreamed of. And it will start with me. And it really has. And so we are creating the whole story of Pomelo wow. um, in food, in wine. And you're going to be back on the beach, walking down the beach with me believing that creativity is as near as that stingray. Wow, Joe, I think you've given me goosebumps. So let's talk about the fifth desert island dish, and that's the dish you eat the most often. It's called bits and pieces dinner. <laughs> Going back to the council estate girl, I hate a waste of food. So the thing that we probably have at least once a week is I'll go into the fridge, normally a Sunday night or Monday, look at what's left, 
and do bits and pieces dinner. So it might be, yeah, and and it's a bag of spinach. It might be an egg. It might be some cold roast potatoes. And I think of a way of using whatever is there and using using it all up. And actually, my my son really is veering towards vegetarian. And actually, it's the easiest fridge to do a bits and pieces dinner, stir fry, omelette, frittata, anything like that. So bits and pieces dinner, never throw anything away. And even if we've got like tiny little can of baked beans that we've had or something, <laughs> you know, you can always, my favorite one is a bag of spinach and a pot of hummus. And you can make a wonderful like spinach, hummus, onion, chili, as long as you've got spices on crispy toast. Oh, so good. Yeah, yeah. Bits and pieces dinner. There is nothing better than a fridge forage, which is what we call it. Oh, house, yeah. <laughs> Much cheaper. <laughs> but you can kind of pretend you're on your own version of ready, steady, cook. Like, what can you make out of very random ingredients? Very sometimes satisfying. disastrous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's not that delicious, but still satisfying. So analyzing the names of the fragrances for Joe Loves, it does feel like a really different direction to what you've done before. And it shows sort of your real passion for food. So mango, Thai lime, green, orange and coriander, red truffle, 21, (laughs) the salted caramel and lemongrass candles. I mean, I personally want to thank you very much for creating a truffle fragrance, which I think is just the most genius thing ever. Food is obviously really interlinked with this Mm. range. Could food be a sort of natural next step? Well, actually, we for Happy Birthday Pomelo, yeah. we've just done the most amazing pomelo tasting menu for a dinner. that, And I enjoyed the process of that so much, I can't tell you, looking at each. Because taste and smell are really, really, really close together. And a few years ago, I sat on one of these incredible machines where you take like the scent of pomelo and you try and create the taste from it. You know, they're so closely linked together where, um, you know, we've collaborated. We've done things like cocktails. We've done things like menus. We've done biscuits, barbecues. I mean, I've done all kind of different things with food, but food absolutely fascinates me. I like the texture, the taste. I like the depth. And I I suppose I cook in the same way that I create fragrance. Not, in, I like simplicity, though. I don't like... I'm not very keen on a veloute, if I'm really okay, honest. Yeah. <laughs> Foams don't have a oh, I can't bear them. I like, but I hate dry food as well. So I like food that's either got a sauce or a wonderful uh, spiced olive oil over the top of it. Um, but I like, I think simplicity and food, that's where I want to be. Let's pause there and talk about the sixth desert island dish. And that is your go-to dinner party dish. So I was thinking about this. I Again, I like simplicity. So I have three things that I can do really, really well. But I think my, like when all my son's friends come around and they have dinner, I always do this. They love it. I do a fillet of beef and I like it nice and pink, to be honest. Crispy uh, panacetta on the top of it. Roast potatoes that have been cooked three times. So we re- they're really, really crispy. And these big bowls of every tomato you can imagine, tomato, fresh basil, olive oil, salad, uh, with Bernay sauce and an affogato to finish with that. That's, that's my go-to dinner and it works every single time. <laughs> you kind of made it sound like it was going to be something when you said your son really liked, I'm not surprised your son really likes it. That sounds like absolutely they, heaven. They, <laughs> no, and it, nothing. It's so funny whenever I love it when they, when he brings all his friends for dinner and, um, you know, we haven't done those big dinner parties, but we had about eight of them before he went back to uni. And I said, what do you want? He went, Oh, beef, 
fillet of beef joe or please roast Wait, is potatoes. this the same son that's thinking about becoming a vegetarian uh yeah this that, yeah <laughs> but that was obviously his leaving meal okay yeah <laughs> um on desert island dishes we have a cookbook corner so i'd like to know what is your most treasured oh. cookbook Little Paris Kitchen by Ooh, Rachel Koo. Oh my choice. God, I literally love. I love two. I love Ava Garten, mm-hmm. Barefoot Countessa. I, I love that show. But I think the book I love the most is Rachel Koo because I love her story. I love her spirit. I love her cockavan kebabs that you cook on the terrace. Ooh. But she cooks everything from this tiny little belling cooker. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's my favorite book, cookbook. I can't believe it, Joe, but we're on to the final seventh desert island dish, and that is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Oh, being before being cast off. Yes. I imagine myself sitting on my terrace, covered with candles, the long white table, white tablecloth with the most favourite people in the world, and I would cook roast chicken with all the trimmings, uh, like a bread sauce. I love all the trim bread sauce, Brussels sprouts, bacon, roast potatoes, cauliflower cheese, you name it on there. And apple, blackberry crumble with cream. Yum. Joe, that's amazing. My my last meal. I think we'll all be joining you. And lots of wine. Yeah, (laughs) obviously. (laughs) Thank you so much, Joe. Thank Thank you you for letting us hear your lovely interview. (laughs) Thank you. So there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that if you enjoyed today's episode, you can rate and review the podcast on iTunes and even subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And it really does make such a difference. It sort of boosts the show in the charts and helps others to find it, which is great and means that I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at desertislanddishes.co. Thank you again to our sponsor, Cook's Matches, and I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.